HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Good Sunday to you, and welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Anne Saxelby. Today's episode of Cutting the Curd is being produced by Jack Inslee and engineered by Nat Wiener. And we'd like to give a big thanks to our sponsor for today, Hearst Ranch. So, joining me on today's show is David Gumpert, author of the recently published book, The Raw Milk Revolution, Behind America's Emerging Battle Over Food Rights, which was put out there by uh, Chelsea Green. We're going to be discussing the controversy surrounding one of our most fundamental foodstuffs, raw milk. What was once consumed daily by countless people across the globe has now become a substance uh, regulated in some cases almost as strictly as narcotics by some uh, states and agencies in the United States. And being a cheesemonger, I come up against the raw milk debate quite often. In the U.S., it is illegal to sell cheese made from raw milk um, that is aged for less than 60 days, Um, meaning that a lot of soft cheeses, fresh dairy products, butter, yogurt, milk, um, I can't sell at my store, um, and I would very much like to. Um, And so I, you know, personally would love to see a lot of these regulations relaxed so that um, people could enjoy raw milk and the beautiful products uh, that, you know, can be made from raw milk. And um, I'm hoping that our conversation with David today can help to shed some light on uh, the different elements of this battle and uh, tell us a little bit um, about what the state of raw milk in the United States is. So without further ado, let's get uh, Mr. Gumpert on the line to see just what's going on in the world of raw milk. Uh, welcome to Cutting the Curd, David. Thank you, Anne. Glad to be here. Uh, how are you doing today? Good, good. It's uh, I'm up in New Hampshire, and it's a crisp, cold, snowy day. Oh, excellent, excellent. Well, down here in New York, it's definitely crisp and cold, too. We didn't we didn't get too much snow, but uh, hopefully in the next uh, couple of weeks. Everyone everyone thinks I'm weird because I want it to snow, but I'm from Chicago originally, so, you know. Well, so am I. I, I understand which, where you're coming from. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking some time out to be on the show today. Um, so I wanted to ask you kind of how you came to write this book. It seems like you've worn many different journalistic hats. Um, and so, yeah, what led you to write a book about raw milk? Two things 
led me to write it. Uh, one is that I've spent much of my journalistic uh, writing career reporting and, uh, on, a, on small business and entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And um, I also, uh, so that's kind of one part of it. And I, I've written a number of books about how to start a small business and how to do a business plan. And what could be more entrepreneurial than being a small farmer in today's exactly. economy? Exactly. Well, that, that, you, 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 know, you took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, that, uh, I became interested uh, several years ago in uh, alternative health and different approaches to alternative health. And the, uh, one of the things I began reporting on was how the U.S. Food and Drug Administration was making life difficult for small companies and the alternative health arena. And, and that kind of led into the, the raw milk thing. Interesting, because I, um, I know that you also, you before you wrote this book, you have a blog, isn't that right? Yes, I have a blog called The Complete Patient. So it's, it's, it's just the way it sounds. It's www.thecompletepatient.com. Mm-hmm. And I began reporting there in um, early 2006 about some of the issues around uh, alternative health and and, uh, and regulatory uh, uh, issues around uh, around these uh, smaller organizations at smaller companies that are were being hassled by the FDA and and, and uh, I think it was really September and October of 2006 uh, there were all of a sudden a number of uh, events that occurred right around the same time. Uh, with regard to small, excuse me, with regard to raw milk, mm. there was a, a, a there was a situation in California where the um, uh, California Department of Food and Agriculture shut down a uh, raw dairy, the largest raw dairy in California, because uh, several children became ill and they thought it was from the raw milk, and uh, they shut that uh, dairy down for ten days. Uh, in Michigan, authorities carried out a sting operation against a raw dairy producer uh, just as he was delivering milk to um, uh, co-op members in Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. And then there were a number of incidents going on in Ohio, uh, including one where uh, agents from the FDA and the Ohio Department of Agriculture uh, uh, in- intercepted a uh, farmer delivering uh, raw milk or actually dropping it off to uh, members of a, of a cooperative time type arrangement in, in Cincinnati. And they, uh, they, they kind of cornered this guy and questioned him so intensively, he collapsed and, and developed uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms and couldn't work for six months. I read that in your book. I was, I was astounded to, to, to hear that. I mean, um, but that's, that just gives, I guess that, you know, gives people out there an idea of what uh, sort of crazy measures the government will go to for something like raw milk. I I um I buy some raw milk cheese from uh, um, a farmer in New Jersey, and he was joking around one day saying, you know, that um, milk um, is you know second in uh, sort of regulatory attention from from uh, you know their state government only to narcotics. <laughs> And I was like amazed, you know, something that used to 
that should not be subject to that kind of scrutiny, in, in my opinion, anyways. Uh, they just take such drastic measures. Well, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, that, that I think what's important to keep in mind that the reason these incidents happened, it, it wasn't just a happenstance. Uh, the, um, the government was becoming increasingly concerned that uh, raw milk was growing in popularity. And they had been, uh, the FDA and the Centers for Disease Control have been warning people for years about raw milk. And what's been happening is, is that uh, uh, increasingly people are ignoring those warnings. So, so uh, every time they warn people, it seems like sales go up. And uh, uh, so what they decided to do was instead of uh, trying to influence the consumer, they would try to interfere with the production. Mm-hmm. And so that was really what was, or what not only what was behind the 2006 events, but to, continues to be behind ongoing events. I mean, right now we're seeing um, a big crackdown in Wisconsin. Interesting. And, yeah, yeah, and they move around from um, from dairy producing state to dairy producing state. And so, well, that that's an interesting thing too, because I feel like for a lot of people who are interested in in raw milk. Um, it's a subject that is kind of shrouded in mystery and, um, you know, how to get it, what is it, you know, and, and um, I think something that contributes to that is the fact that raw milk is regulated state by state as opposed to having a, you know, a sort of um, nationwide FDA policy. Well, the, the, it's, it's, um, that is pretty much true, although it, it's important to keep in mind that the FDA uh, in um, the late 1980s instituted a uh, ban on interstate shipment of raw milk. Ah, So um, one of the ways that, one of the reasons that the FDA got involved in in the incidents I mentioned in uh, in Ohio and Michigan is because some of the milk, some of the dairy products had traveled uh, between uh, between states. And so um, they do get involved to that extent. But you're right, uh, for the most part, each state has its own uh, its own regulation or its own law about raw milk, and um, it's pretty crazy. It's it, uh, there are about 21 states that uh, uh, completely prohibit the sale of raw milk. Uh, in many of those states, though, consumers have established what are known as herd share arrangements, and what they do basically is they buy a share in in a uh, in the cows of a, of a dairy, so and it's then they're entitled to, to some of the milk as, it, as it's produced. So um, it's essentially like a co-op, like someone like joins a co-op. a co-op and then they're expected to participate in some way in the day-to-day workings of the, of the store, except for in this case we're talking about an actual farm instead of a, instead of a store. Yes, yes. Okay. And, 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 and in other I... states, some other states, I think there are about a half a dozen states where raw milk can be sold, but only as pet food. So uh, you have that in, in Florida and Georgia and a few other states. And then there are about a half a dozen states um, where raw milk is actually legal to be sold retail. And uh, that's the case in Connecticut. A lot of New Yorkers buy their raw milk in Connecticut, um, and, and it's, a, it's a case in Maine. Uh, the biggest state that allows uh, the uh, retail sale of raw milk is California. Right. And uh, there are an estimated uh, somewhere between fifty and 65,000 consumers out there who, who just you know, can regularly buy their milk at Whole Foods and, and various health stores. That seems like such a luxury. Oh, my goodness. It is. It is. And, and, and people there sometimes comment on my blog about they, they realize how lucky they are yeah. to be able to do that. I guess they, when they read about some other things going on in places like Wisconsin and, and Ohio. Because, yeah, for somebody, once you've tasted raw milk, to really to drink anything else seems like, you know, 
you know, not as not as good. It's like if you're going to go for it, you might as well go whole hog. And the taste of raw milk is just so uh, sort of wonderful and, and rich. It is. And the other thing that goes on is that people experience health benefits. Uh, and um, this is a, an area that's kind of shrouded in, in scientific mystery because uh, there aren't a lot of studies to, to support it, but you have a, a lot of people who say that uh, they're... Um, uh, things like lactose intolerance goes away, uh, that their um, uh, the children's asthma improves, mm-hmm. uh, the allergies go away. So that you have those kinds of testimonials, uh, what the scientists refer to as anecdotal evidence. But it, it, for those families who, who experience those benefits, they they're, they they become it almost becomes as you said earlier earlier like a drug in the sense that they become very dependent on uh, on this food. Now, I mean, can we just go back for a minute and talk, um, because I'm very interested in the, in the science and, and all this, uh, the scientific part of it and the benefits of drinking raw milk. But before we get into that, I think it would be interesting to discuss a little bit about why raw milk became sort of stigmatized in the first place and um, how, you know, what started off as sort of a perfect food designed by Mother Nature, you know, has, uh, you know, how pasteurization became the norm in the first place. Could we talk about that for a minute? Sure, sure. Uh, well, you know, until, the, uh, until about 1900, um, all, food, all milk was raw milk. And uh, actually, so when you, when you think about it historically, uh, for hundreds of years before then, um, all milk was consumed unpasteurized, and there really wasn't much of a problem that we know about mm-hmm. until the mid 1800s, which is the time of the Industrial Revolution. Of and uh, what you had was many people moving from the farm to the city, mm-hmm. and uh, so when they when they moved to the city, uh, the people moved to the city, and and they needed their milk. And what what happened in many cases is uh, the um, uh, the Cows moved to the city as well, and you actually had a situation. Not quite the same as uh, as being out uh, on pasture, let's say. No, it was really <laughs> it was not it was um, not even close. Uh, you had situations. In fact, I describe it in my book uh, uh, where you had the equivalent of uh, really the first feedlots, as it were, um, in places like Brooklyn. Right. Uh, you you had uh, which were uh, oftentimes linked to distilleries, right, or, or breweries. Were, yeah, and, and what the uh, what the um, uh, animal uh, raisers, uh, I guess the, the city farmers, as it were, and the distilleries had in common was or, uh, the mutual interest was that the grains uh, could be uh, they they thought could be uh, after they were used to make alcohol could then be fed to the um, cows which of course is a is an erroneous thought because cows are you know they are ruminants and they're designed to digest grass not spent grain not not only are they designed to digest grass but um they they certainly they are fed uh grains to i mean even today and in in our feedlots uh uh, cattle are, are fed um, corn and, and other grains, but um, and they, and it's not a natural food for them. But the grain they were receiving from these distilleries was was totally uh, um, uh, it was was pretty much pretty much devoid of of nutrients. So uh, because it had been used to to make the alcohol, and so um, what you had was uh, cows receiving this really. Um, unnatural depleted food and so they they became sick and they produced uh, watery milk and which and, in turn made other people sick 
Well, yeah, I don't, yeah. I mean, it, it it certainly made the made the cows susceptible to illness, and then you had uh, there really wasn't much understanding during those days of the importance of, of refrigeration, and um, so and and the importance of uh, sanitation. So you had workers who often were um, had had diseases themselves. They might have tuberculosis, or they might have been exposed to tuberculosis, and they would pass that on in the milk and typhoid and 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 at the same time we really didn't understand much about these diseases we didn't understand much about the dangers of pathogens so um you had all these things kind of coming together and uh and pasteurization at that point then would seem like a pretty excellent solution a sort of cure-all you had many children thousands of children would die in outbreaks in the late 1800s and early 1900s and uh once pasteurization was applied those death rates went way down Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you had other things going on, too, which tend to get overlooked in the propaganda war when the the CDC and the FDA talk about it. I mean, you had uh, sewerage systems being built in the late 1800s, early 1900s, so the water began to be cleaned up. And uh, that, that was certainly a factor in a lot of the illnesses that were breaking out. Absolutely. Well, actually, I hate to interrupt us right here, but we do have to take a short break. And when we come back, I definitely want to talk about that and um, how that ties in, because I feel like looking at uh, raw milk as a and, and our health as a holistic thing, as opposed to isolating this, you know, one culprit is a very important part of your book. So we'll be back in a minute on Cutting the Curd. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. Our show today has been sponsored by Hearst Ranch. And my guest today is David Gumpert, author of the book, The Raw Milk Revolution, Behind America's Emerging Battle Over Food Rights, which is published by Chelsea Green. Um, So David, we were just talking about other factors that sort of led to sickness in this time. And I think that that would be kind of a perfect time to talk about um, the different scientific theories of the age, which in your book you kind of posit Louis Pasteur at one end of the spectrum and then Bichamp and some other scientists um, at the other end of the spectrum and how their theories kind of play into those ideas, um, you know, being sort of Louis Pasteur isolating one element that's a problem versus Bichamp and the others talking about the body as a, as a whole um, organism and how different systems kind of can interact with each other and cause, you know, health or disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Louis Pasteur uh, came up with something called uh, the germ theory, and that is uh, the idea behind the germ theory, which really is still the prevalent theory that our medical community operates under, is that germs cause disease, and our challenge, uh, the scientific challenge, the medical challenge, is to uh, get rid of those germs. So, um, and we saw dramatic examples of, of that with antibiotics. 
Um, they, of course, uh, and, and, and we're, we're still kind of uh, obsessed with that battle uh, with all the uh, uh, advice today to use sanitizers and to, um, uh, in France, to avoid hugging and, you know, all this kind of thing. Um, <laughs> Fra- pe- in France, the country where people kiss each other, like, on the cheek, that's, exactly. like, as an initial reaction? That's very strange. It is very strange, <laughs> but it's, a, it's part of a kind of a climate of fear that has developed over germs and, and bacteria when, when in fact, uh, there, there certainly there are uh, pathogens that um, uh, can lead to illness, but um, there are also uh, friendly bacteria that are very important, and, and that kind of starts to get into the whole raw milk thing. Because, so can, you, um, can but, you tell us a little bit about the opposing science, the Bichamps and the um, Mechnikovs and um, some of the other people that were proposing a different theory around the same time, but that ended up getting sort of overlooked? Yeah, there, there were a number of uh, scientists. I mean, all, the, all these scientists were French, and uh, you had Louis Pasteur, who was uh, uh, promoting the germ theory. Uh, then you had uh, a number of scientists who were opposed that, and, and it was really a subject of pretty intense debate during the 1880 to 1900 period, when a lot of uh, advances were being made, and just in terms of understanding the fact that pathogens existed and, the, and that people could get ill as a result of pathogens. But you had um, a French physiologist by the name of uh, Claude Bernard, and he talked about something, and you'll pardon my French, called the milieu interior, uh, which, which really uh, was uh, he was he was convinced that it was this uh, what he called the internal environment of the individual that um, uh, determined their uh, their their their, uh, their sort of health, to stay yeah. healthy or to mm-hmm. get sick, and that um, and as you said, uh, Eli Mechnikov, who who talked about um, uh, the um, notion that white blood cells. Uh, Attack uh, germs that that um, get into our, our systems and and fight those germs and uh, uh, those more holistic type approaches uh, were not were opposed by Pasteur and by his supporters and so I, I guess Pasteur had had something uh, I, I was going to say he he had something of um, the promotional uh, talent but he also had something else going for him, and that is that it's um, it's just a lot easier for people to relate to the idea that um, you know that we have these bad germs and we got to kill them, and it's a, it's a, it's it's straightforward and simple. Yeah, it, absolutely. I was thinking about you know a, a lot of science is reductionist, and it was kind of the same. You know, I feel like there are some tie-ins even to our current uh, system of agriculture. You know, where they isolated certain elements in the soil, and they said these elements are necessary for plants to grow vigorously, and so they put more of those elements into the soil without thinking about the repercussions of, you know, kind of the soil as a whole and how those things, all those things interact. Um, Yeah, you kind of lose sight of the fact, for instance, that there are, and this is both in in the soil and in people, that there are certain trace elements, trace minerals that are very important. And so raw milk, in fact, um, you argue in your book, has a lot of those um, sort of beneficial you know, enzymes and uh, bacteria and other things like that that help our, our, our system combat illness and build immunity and stuff like that? Yeah. Now, once, as I said earlier, the, the, the research is limited, but the, but the research that is there uh, is suggesting that raw milk does have certain properties. Uh, as, as you point out, the things like um, uh, beneficial bacteria um, uh, 
microorgan various microorganisms and enzymes. Uh, there was a big study out of Europe just within the last three years that uh, showed uh, uh, that children who consumed raw milk uh, had lower incidences of asthma and allergies, for example. Uh, so there is data begin beginning to be um, to come to come together on this. And who are the people organizing this data? Because it seems like our government's fighting as hard as they can to, you know, sort of say everything to the contrary. But it seems very important that there are people out there doing this research. So how is that? How is that happening? Well, there's a, a, a group of scientists that got together in in Europe, and it actually included some American um, researchers, but it was under European auspices. And, and you're correct; the the Europeans are more uh, open to the idea that. Um, Raw milk uh, has benefits, and uh, and in this country, it, it would be very difficult to get that kind of study going because the the uh, medical establishment and the, the the federal government are just st so um, steadfast in their opposition to raw milk uh, that uh, I mean, if the FDA really, the, the head of the dairy division of the FDA won't even uh, be in the allow himself to be in the same building with people who are in favor of raw milk. Wow. It's, it's really that uh, visceral. Well, that seems like um, that's a, a pretty powerful statement. And so that, um, you know, that, that I thought that was very interesting in your book, that you said that um, even though uh, the incidences of illness, which you described, uh, you know, there was uh, an incidence in, in California and, and a few others, you know, these things were blamed on raw milk, by the government, but then when there was suspicion raised that actually raw milk was not the cause of different, uh, you know, different sicknesses in the country, the government would not even comment on those, uh, you know, on those findings, which I found very uh, interesting. This kind of radio silence. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, they they um, don't want to talk about those situations. Although I think it's important to keep in mind, and uh, that uh, people can get ill from raw milk, uh, but they can also get get sick from pasteurized milk, and they can get sick from spinach, and they can get sick from peanut butter. Uh, so it, it is um, important to appreciate that it's it's possible to get sick from food, and there are. Um, Many thousands of illnesses every year from foodborne illness. Uh, we actually have uh, some pretty significant legislation in Congress right now to deal with the whole issue of foodborne illness. Uh, but um, I, I don't, I don't want to um, suggest that uh, uh, that all the reports of illness from raw milk are um, are, are, are uh, misstated. Or anything. Yeah, absolutely. But there have been a number of, of situations. That, that case I mentioned in Michigan, they, where they did a sting operation, that turned out to be a case where, uh, based on uh, a family becoming sick, and it turned out that the, sick children, uh, the family, initially the, the illnesses were blamed on raw milk, but more likely the illnesses were the result of some bad pasteurized milk. Very interesting. So... We only have a couple minutes left, and, and for those couple of minutes, I wanted to I wanted to talk to you about um, the idea that you mention on the back of your book. There's a big um, sort of headline in red that says "The Right to Healthy Food: The New Civil Rights Movement," um, and I think that's a very interesting way to to think about it. Sort of the right to to choose our food um, is has been sort of a fundamental, inalienable right up until recently, and. Um, 
Can you uh, just sort of explain to us sort of other examples of people not being able to to choose, um, you know, the foods that they that they enjoy? I think you mentioned, I don't know, almonds and some other things like right. that. Right, right. I mean, what, what, one of the things that's very interesting about the way this all happens, and this is the case with milk, is the the government doesn't try to change these things overnight. Uh, um, pasteurization came into play gradually, beginning in the early 1900s, and it wasn't really until um, uh, the end of the century that uh, all of a sudden people looked around and found that uh, it was very difficult to find raw milk because it had been pretty much uh, eliminated uh, because of via pasteurization. But the same kind of thing has happened with um, uh, things like apple cider. If you remember, there wasn't. It was a time not too long ago where you could uh, buy unpasteurized apple cider uh, in the store or at farm stands. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost impossible to find um, unpasteurized apple cider today. Uh, vegetable juices, uh, uh, fresh vegetable juices, um, w- uh, were pretty widely available. It's, it's, it's. You can't go into a grocery store today and buy uh, unpasteurized vegetable juice. You can't, uh, as you mentioned, almonds. You, you can't. It's very difficult to find unpasteurized beer. And the same kinds of uh, uh, what they call scientific uh, or standards, uh, pasteurization as being a scientifically endorsed standard, are being applied to other things. Um, the most notable is irradiation. And now uh, the FDA uh, said earlier this year that irradiation is safe. And uh, so we're going to start, uh, we, we actually vegetables are, are, and meats are starting to be irradiated. Wow. So are those the kinds of things that people can learn more about on your blog, The Complete Patient? Yes. Okay. Yes, they can learn more about it in my blog and, and in the book, uh, The Raw Milk Revolution. That's uh, that's incre- It's an incredible resource because um, I feel like uh, it's a sort of generational thing. Um, people, my, for example, people you know that I grew up with wouldn't even know to ask for raw milk because I never grew up drinking it, and uh, you know it wasn't until I met a dairy farmer who sold raw milk cheese that that, that thought even occurred to me. So I feel like um, the reeducation of people about natural foods and, and what their what their options are is kind of right now probably one of our biggest battles. Yes, I agree. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time out to be on the show. And I would encourage everybody to uh, look at your blog, The Complete Patient, and also to pick up a copy of The Raw Milk Revolution published by uh, Chelsea Green because it is an incredible chronicle of um, one of our most potent foodstuffs that should be able to be enjoyed in its unadulterated state. So uh, thanks for being on the show, and uh, I will talk to you very soon. Okay, thank you, Anne. Thanks, David.